God, now as we, we step into your word and we consider really heavy theological truth, but it's absolutely profound for us and important for us to grasp. I pray you'd bring clarity where there could be confusion. And I pray that you would bring freedom where there could be bondage. So God, we ask you to speak in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Every year when I arrive in Rwanda, you know, I'm always glad to climb off the plane after 17 to 20 hours of travel. You know, you, you finally get to get out of your seat, grab your bag, and head down the steps that they bring up to the side of the airplane, and it's great after leaving New England in February and stepping into the warm air of the early evening in Rwanda. But every time I make my way across the 150-plus yards of tarmac between the plane and where you enter for immigration into the country... You know, and, and I'm, I'm taking in the smells and the warmth and glad to be out of my seat and able to stretch my legs. There's always this, this, this remembrance that comes to me that this is also the land where genocide took place. Just a little over 20 years ago, in a 100-day span, 800,000 people died. Men, women, and children. Family members turned on family members. Neighbors turned on neighbors. Friends turned on friends simply because they had a different label than them. And many folks got caught up, if you will, in the rampage. And, and every time I, I walk across that tarmac and, and I think about past visits and potentially upcoming visits to one of the genocide memorials, I am absolutely overwhelmed by the capacity of the human soul for evil. One of the great struggles that we have as people is that we realize that we, can, we really have a tremendous capacity for good, but we also know we have a tremendous capacity for evil. And, and, and it's sobering to be confronted with our ability to come up short, to fail, to truly be sinful and unworthy and harmful to others. And though as I look around the room today, I know there's nobody here who's ever participated in a genocide, just the, whole, uh, the wholesale slaughter of human life. In fact, as I look around our room today, I, I don't see anybody who's ever taken human life. But many of us, as we come to our relationship with God, as we come to our spiritual journey, as we come with the dealings of, of everyday life, dealings with ourselves and others, we, we have stuff that hangs on us. We, we have things that we struggle to forgive ourselves for, and we embrace it, in, 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 if you will, that, that lack of, of ability to forgive ourselves, to feel free of it. it. It begins to identify us as people who are unworthy, that somehow or another God just doesn't look at us and feel about us, and if other people knew us and could see into us, they just wouldn't care about us the same way, and as that unworthiness kind of sets up in a, a sense of character within us, we, we develop a sense of shame, and we since tend to lose our sense of, of identity and our ability to truly be free in Christ, and you know, it's, it's, 
we struggle. I mean, you know, many of us have issues that we bring to the table when we ask this question about how do we really forgive ourselves in this journey? Because when we're talking about the power of forgiveness, and last week we talked about the power of God to forgive us and what he's done for us, we also have to come to this question of asking ourselves, how do we really forgive ourselves? Because somewhere in this room, there's somebody who probably had an abortion earlier in their journey. And today they bring a heavy sense of, of weight and responsibility for all of that. There's others who have think back through a relationship, maybe a failed marriage, and they think about their part in it. Maybe they committed adultery or they were just truly neglectful or harmful or whatever, and, and, they, and they feel that weight and how it destroyed their family and broke their relationship with their children, et cetera, and they, and they just struggle with getting free and clear of that. Some of us think about the pain and devastation we've brought to the lives of others because we've struggled with an addiction. Maybe it's to drugs or to alcohol. Maybe it's to gambling. Maybe it's to pornography. Maybe it's just an addiction to work and getting ahead. And so there's a, and we just, we bear all this stuff. And, and then others of us, we struggle with, we, we, we just know, we, we, we look back and we just have a, a sense of a wound that's been inflicted on our own spirit because we knew we, we haven't been the, the husband or the wife that we're supposed to be. We haven't been the parent that we need to be to our children. Or we came up short in certain moments in that journey. Or maybe some of us have a broken relationship with a parent. And we struggle with the fact that we have a role in that. And maybe that parent at this point isn't even alive anymore to be able to seek reconciliation. And we have this weight that lives on us. And, and, and it goes on and on, this, this inner realization that we could have done more, we could have been more, we could have given more, we could have helped more, and et cetera. And, and we get to a place where we have this weight that sits on us, a burden. And much of our challenge is, is, is the same as the Rwandan churches are struggling with now, is 20 years later, those who kind of got caught up in the the, the, the momentum of the genocide and they participated, they, they got sent off to jail for 20 years and now they're being released. And they're coming back into their villages, back into their communities, back into their churches. And we struggle with this issue of how do we forgive others, but there's also that dynamic, how do these people fit into the church and, and actually experience God's forgiveness so that they can forgive themselves. And that's the issue that I want to talk to us about today. How is it that you and I, as God's people, can forgive ourselves? And, and I, this, this journey may take us in a, in a little different direction, but, but I think that this is one of the most difficult things that we struggle with. Because I think in many ways it's easier for us to forgive other people than it is to forgive ourselves. And there's probably a number of reasons for that. One of those is that you and I are usually our biggest critics. If if, if I was to ask you a question like, what are you good at and what are you bad at, you'd figure out the bad a whole lot faster than the good, wouldn't you? You know, we, we, we're much more acutely aware of our weaknesses than we are of our strengths, and the list just kind of goes on and on. And then those that seem to always be able to, you know, drum up all the, we, we just kind of, you know, people who, who seem to be all about their strengths and always put them on, we look at them and saying they're, they're compensating, right? You know, they're, you know they're, they're talking a big game because they're not playing a big game. And the list just, so we are often our biggest critics, and, and 
we have a viewpoint, a vantage, if you will, looking, because we, we get to listen to everything that's going on between our ears, right? You know, we look at other people. We don't really know their motives. We can see their actions. Sometimes we can deal with that, forget it, forgive it, and, and let it go. But we look inside of ourselves, and we can hear it all. We can see it all. We know what we're thinking. We know what we're feeling. We, we know what we did, but we know what we really wanted to do, and we struggle with all that internal stuff. And then we're also far more aware, not just of the things that we commit, the sins of commission, but we're also aware of the sins of omission, the things that we should have done but didn't do, and maybe nobody else even recognizes it, but we sense it for ourselves, and, and, we, and this burden is there. And, and somehow or another, the more we care about being a good person, the more we care about being a, a righteous person, the more we feel the weight of the shortcomings in our lives, the sin that weighs on us, and et cetera. And, and we struggle with this challenge of forgiving ourselves. So what does the Bible really have to say about forgiving ourselves? And, and if you read my column this week, and I'm sure every single one of you, when you get your e-letter from us, you, you, the first thing you want to do is pop it open and read my column. I know that. You, you wouldn't want to miss it, right? Everybody raised their hand, right? You didn't ever miss it. <laughs> A few of you raised your hand, so I can actually tell how many people opened it, by the way, you know. So we have about a 40% open rate. So there's a lot of you out there who need to repent and start reading. So it... But, you know, we're dealing with this issue. I, I'm not trying to make you feel bad this morning. I'm not trying to make myself feel bad. But, but what we'd really love to do is have a passage like we're going to consider next week. You know, with that moment where Peter comes to Jesus and he thinks, you know what, I'm going to show him how spiritually advanced I am. And he walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my neighbor? Seven times? Peter thinks, you know, I'm way above and beyond. Jesus is going to slap me on the back and say, yeah, you got it. You know? Jesus said, no, 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 no. You need to forgive your neighbor 70 times seven. And when we come to this issue about our shortcomings, the things that we've done wrongs, the things that we didn't do that we shouldn't have done, the things that make us feel unworthy, the things that we struggled to forgive ourselves for, we long to look at a passage where Jesus would say, and you need to forgive yourself 70 times 7. But it's never there. If you look through the Scriptures, you're not going to see a single passage of Scripture that specifically tells you to forgive yourself. But what you are going to see, and this is what we're going to focus on today, what you are going to see is passages over and over and over again that tell you that you're already forgiven, and therefore there's no need to forgive. And let me just bring a couple of those into play. One of those is Psalm 103. I'd love for you to take a Bible and, and turn with me to Psalm 103. If you're using one of our, our pew Bibles, you're going to find it on page 508. And um, we're going to switch over to another passage, but I'd love for you to kind of stay there. So maybe you want to grab your bulletin flap and tear it off so you'll have it ready to drop in the bulletin later, and you can stick it in their page with you um, and, and get back and forth between the two. But this is a powerful psalm, and, and I want to read just verses 10 through 14 for us and make a few comments about it. It is on our screen, but I'd love for you to see it in black and white on your pages as well. This is what the psalmist, following God's word, speaking through him, says to us, and he, this is a reference to God, verse 10, he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us 
according to our offenses. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, in other words, beyond measure, so great is his faithful love, and that implies his forgiving love, towards those who fear him. We might write the word believe in him. As far as the east is from the west, I still haven't figured out how far that is, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We might use the word sin, the things that we can't forgive ourselves for. So as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed the things that we can't forgive ourselves for. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. Just a few truths I want to pull up here, and then we'll move on to the next passage. I want you to notice the enormity of God's love for us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, and so the psalmist is trying to say, as we look into the sky and we see the stars and we imagine how far away those are, God's love is larger than that. It goes further than that. It's bigger than that. He talks about the enormity of God's love for us, and that creates within God a mammoth capacity to love us and to forgive us and to have compassion upon us. The second thing I want you to see is that God removes our sinfulness as far as the east is from the west. God takes it and he puts it in a place where you and I can never reach, we can never find it, we can never discover it if we truly let him release it from us. He puts it in a zip code that we've never heard of and no mail can get to, you can get no responses from. He moves it as far as the east is from the west. And as a result of that, he relates to us as a loving father who knows what we're going for, and whose objective always is to build us up, not to tear us down. So he understands. So stick your bolt and flap in Psalm 103. We're going to come back there. And I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. You're using one of our pew Bibles. You're going to find our text today, page 961. 961. A little heavier sled in here, Okay context again, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Rome, a place that he longed to go, a place that he had never been. He had never met these believers, but he understood one thing. This church was literally planted at the center of the world in those days, and it was absolutely vital that they embrace theological orthodoxy, that they really understood what it was that God had done for us in Jesus Christ, what God had achieved. And so he's been rolling off through chapters 1 all the way up to the end of chapter 11, exactly what it is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he comes to chapter 8, and he begins with these words in verse 1. Therefore, no condemnation exists for those in Christ Jesus. Let me spit it out early. Therefore, there is absolutely no reason for those in Christ to feel guilty about anything. There is no condemnation exists for those who are in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. And what the law could not do, since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned in the flesh by sending his own son 
like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Make sense? We just don't talk that way, right? But some of this is because we don't think this way. We live in a world where everything is encapsulated with the individual. You're your own man, you're your own woman, and that's it. You know, we, you know, you're in that kind of idea. That's not the biblical thought patterns is all. It's not the Hebrew thought pattern. They had a corporate sense of identity. And here's what Paul's trying to say to us. The reason why there is no condemnation for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. The reason why those of us in Christ have absolutely no reason to feel any guilt when we stand before God, therefore we have absolutely nothing to forgive ourselves for, the reason why is because what God has done in Christ to replace what happened in Adam. Now, let let me just back you up just just a, a, a chapter or two. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Like I said, heavy sledding, we're going to get to some stuff, but hang with me. So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Again, we don't think this way. But this is the way the Bible is built. That when Adam stood in the garden and sinned, every single one of us were somehow present in Adam at that moment. Adam is is like a a set of brackets. And inside that bracket is all of humanity. And Adam represents that humanity. So when Adam and Eve disobey God, eat of the fruit that they were not supposed to eat, and they make a choice that is contrary to the will of God. Every single one of us, Adam and Eve, and everyone who's all humanity is condemned in that same act. And so God has given the law for us to try to see the fact that we really are people who need to be redeemed. Then you look in the New Testament, and along comes Jesus Christ, and when Jesus Christ hangs on the cross and the blood is dripping from his brow and the, and the water and blood is dripping from his side and he's crying out, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When he hangs on that cross, every single person who places their faith in Jesus Christ is hanging there with him. And everything that we needed to be forgiven for, everything that we need to forgive ourselves for is, is paid for and done. And there's a sense of corporate or collective identity. In this. And so Paul was trying to write this. You need to understand that the, the law had a role. In, in Adam, we all failed because we were all present in Adam. And then the law shows us that we can never get to a place where we can undo that failure. And along comes God and Jesus Christ. And every single one of us who place our faith in Christ and are in Christ, we hung on the cross with him already. That debt's already paid, it's already been forgiven. There's nothing less that needs to be dealt with. You are free. Now, here are some implications that flow from all of this. Like I told you, this is heavy stuff, but I got to tell you, this is the heart and soul, because if you guys are, are, are anything like me, it is really difficult to let stuff go where we failed. 
You know, there, there are moments in our journey where we can think of what somebody else has done from us and, and to us, and, and that taste can just return to our mouth just like that. But there's also, when we think about things that we have done in our lives that have caused hurt and pain towards others that we care about, ways that we come up short, we can instantly feel that same sense of unworthiness, that sense of being unredeemable, etc. We feel it all, and, and God wants to step into the midst of all of that and say, you are forgiven There is nothing for you to forgive yourself. So this is what I want you to know. Know this. As a true believer in Jesus Christ, that means somebody who's truly confronted their sin, confessed it to God, chosen to repent of it, saying, I don't want to live that way anymore, and who intentionally places their faith in Jesus Christ with a commitment to living for Christ, living by faith for the rest of their lives, for every single true believer in Jesus Christ, not just the kind of like, I believe in God and I want to be a decent person and I want my neighbors to like me, and that kind of, but specifically have chosen to accept the forgiveness that comes to us in Jesus Christ. For every true believer in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to be forgiven for in terms of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's been dealt with, it's done, it's gone. There is no basis as you stand before God for any sense of ongoing guilt. Because it's gone. It's gone. It was dealt with in Jesus Christ. It's over. You know, God would make the perfect congressional witness, wouldn't he? It, it, let, me, let me play that out just a little bit. You know, let's just imagine that, that there, there's a panel that, that calls God to testify against Neil Davidson. All right, so you know you got a group of senators. So Senator X Y Z from such and such state, he says, "Well, I want to thank you, Lord Almighty, for being with us today, et cetera." So I want to get right to the point, and we we want to talk about this member of your family, your son, your child, whose name is Neil Davidson. Tell us about that day back, that Sunday in February a few years ago, where his favorite team was playing to have the greatest season in the history or professional football, and they lost in the final moments to a stupid team by the name of the New York Giants. (laughs) And as he sat in his living room and he thought these thoughts that he should not think, what do you have to say for those? And you could see the Almighty leaning into the telephone, into the microphone saying, Senator, I don't recall those things. Because he doesn't. Or said, well, what about that day when he was running late for his doctor's appointment and so he was driving aggressively, riding people's bumpers, speeding excessively. What do you, I don't recall those things. I mean, he would make the perfect congressional witness because he doesn't recall anything. He's forgotten it all. It's all been forgiven. He's removed it as far as the east from the west. He can't even find it. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you understand the point. There's nothing for us to be forgiven. There's no basis for guilt. So here's what I want to tell you this morning based on the word of God. This is what I'm trying to say to myself, what I want to try to say. Stop acting as though you know better than God. Stop acting like you say, well, I know God's forgiven me for that, but God was dumb. He shouldn't have done that. I know better than him, so I'm going to hold on to it and feel guilty about it. One of the greatest forms of spiritual arrogance that we have in our lives is that we choose not to forgive ourselves when God has said, I've already forgiven it. So stop being spiritually arrogant. Stop holding on to what God has already removed from you. Don't stop thinking that you need to be forgiven for something that's already been forgiven 
and removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Stop thinking that you're smarter than God. And the second thing, I want, so just stop feeling guilty. You know, just stop. One of the most powerful words that we can add to our spiritual vocabulary is simply the word stop. Stop. When you start to feel that way, when you start to, you know, drum this stuff, and oh, I'm not really worthy, and et cetera, I'm not redeemable, God can't really change me, God can't use me, that kind of stuff, you need to say to yourself, stop. Don't be an idiot. Stop. (laughs) Because God is leaning into the microphone saying, I don't recall that. I don't recall that. Because he doesn't. It's not there anymore. It's gone. Now, I'm not saying there aren't things that we need to do to repair relationships with other people and that kind of stuff. But when you and I stand before God and we continue to feel unworthy, we continue to retain guilt, we say, you know what, God? The cross really didn't matter. And God says, it did. So stop feeling guilty. Now, I know that's not always easy. It's not easy for me. Maybe it's not easy for you. So here, I want to give you a couple of, of words, if you will, related to this stopping, about releasing this sense of guilt, the sense of unworthiness, of, of, of recognizing that we don't need to forgive ourselves because there's nothing to be forgiven for. And part of the way that we set ourselves free from that is by doing this. One of those is to be absolutely thorough in our confession before God. One of the things that the evil one uses so that you and I retain a sense of guilt and unworthiness, of unusefulness, of being unredeemable, about being unchangeable, one of the things that he uses is to get us to neglect actually going through the process of letting God search us and to try us and for us to confess it and to release it from our lives. And because we are not engaging in thorough confession, There are things that don't change the nature of our relationship with God, but they mar the intimacy of our relationship with God, and we begin to feel distant from him again, and we experience a sense of guilt. And God said, I've already told you how to deal with that. Just be thorough in your confession. Let me give you a couple of areas. One of those, I think, you know, one of those, I think, is is areas is that we need to be very careful about the soft sins. Now, I use the word soft sins, not that they're little sins, but they're the soft sins. One of the reasons why you and I struggle with our sense of being worthy before God is because we are retaining guilt in our lives. We're sensing that we're not really kind of living up because we're retaining things in our lives that aren't supposed to be there. Let me just use a few words. Things like selfishness. Things like materialism. Things like pride. You know, and you could just kind of continue to lust and etc. There are a lot of times these are internal things that we feel. There are things that drive our actions, but they're not necessarily acutely evil like other things. They're not identified as being 
uh, sinful in the same way. And we let a lot of this stuff, this lack of forgiveness, this lack of compassion, this lack of understanding towards others and et cetera, we let all this stuff kind of permeate in our lives. We never confront it. We never let God's spirit confront it within us and we hold on to it and it, and it brings this sense of passion upon us. We, we prayed just a few moments ago for the divisiveness in our country and you know we can struggle with racism and other issues and we hold on to these things and God asks us to be very thorough in our confession. Get it out, get it gone, so I can cleanse you from all unrighteousness so that you can actually experience the lack of a need to forgive yourself because I've already forgiven you in Jesus Christ. Here's the other truth that I would like for you to see. We need to stop giving ourselves a pass on the sins that we commit in our lives. Every single one of us says, I know that's wrong, but because of who they are, there's nothing else I can do. We want to blame our sin on somebody else. My parent wasn't like this. My sibling wasn't like this. If my spouse wasn't like this, then then I wouldn't do these things. And we want to blame it off on somebody else. And the Scripture never, ever, ever lets us off the hook for our own behavior. Never. That's why Paul says in the book of Ephesians, chapter uh, Chapter 4, the verse 26 verse, it says, you know, be angry, okay? That's what other people make you feel. Be angry, but don't sin, because you're still responsible for your behavior, no matter what anybody else is doing it. And a lot of times, we want to give ourselves a pass on our behavior, because we want to blame somebody else, and then we feel the weight of this, and God says, I, I, I've already forgiven you of that, now you just have to ask it so it can be gone, and I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Be thorough in your confession." Here's the second thing I want you to see. And, and I don't know how, how this is going to come across, but, but we need to recognize the difference between guilty and experiencing a godly sorrow or godly grief in our lives. Maybe another way to say it is there's a difference between God bringing conviction in our, in our lives about something that we need to change and God condemning us as people who are not worthy of his love. There's, there's a difference between those two things. Now, the scripture already told us back in Psalm 103 that God loves us like a father loves a child, and he's compassionate, and he's gracious, and, 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 and he, um, you know, he has a love for us that's as high as the heavens are above the earth, and he has compassion on his children. He has compassion on those who fear him. And God, he's already told us all those things. God shows up in our lives to bring a spirit of conviction, to bring a sense of godly sorrow, a godly grief in our lives about the things that are short of what he can really bless in our lives. But he's not doing that to condemn us, to push us away, but he's doing that to grow us, to shape us, to change us so that we can actually be all that we're supposed to be in Jesus Christ. And we need to recognize those differences because I tell you what, if you're not experiencing conviction in your life, you're really probably not interested in walking with God. But those moments of conviction for a true believer in Jesus Christ are not designed for us to say, I'm not worthy of what Jesus did on the cross for me, and I'm, I'm hopeless. That's not what God's trying to do at all. God is trying to bring a word of encouragement. You know, I've always told you that when I was raising our two boys, my objective was, was I wanted them to grow up, get out, and stay out. You know, I mean, that was, my, that was my objective. So far, it's working pretty good. 
So imagine if one of our kids, you know, maybe it's a, a long weekend like this. You know, it's, it's Columbus Day weekend. They got no school on Monday. Some of their friends are going away with one of their families for a big weekend. And they got a big, huge midterm test in the hardest class that they're taking all year on Tuesday. And so they just kind of decide not to tell us about it, right? So, so they come in and say, hey, you know, can we go on this trip? Th this never happened, by the way. I'll throw my kids under the bus a lot of times, but this didn't really ever happen. But just being hypothetical, hey, we, you know, my friends are going, I want to go. What's up? Well, you got any big projects you're going to do? You got any tests you're going to study for? No, 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 no. And so the way they go, they get home on Monday night, 6, 7 o'clock, totally exhausted. They crack a book for just a few minutes. They fall asleep. Next day they go in and they fail the test miserably. So what is your reaction? What is my reaction going to be as a parent? You know, I, I could say, you know what? I want to so crush this kid that he's going to fail every, he's going to break his spirit. He's going to fail every class. He's never going to graduate from high school. He's going to have to live with me forever. Would that be your reaction? No, your reaction would be, what do I need to do to get a hold of this kid's attention so that they can actually grow into the person they really can be and be capable and learn all the things that they're capable of learning of, right? That's the way you're going to react. That's the way I've reacted. And so far, it's working because they grew up, they got out, and they've stayed out, and which is a good thing. You know, and, and, and when you walk through all of that, that's the way God deals with us. When you and I mess up, and some of us have messed up in mammoth ways, I understand that, but when we mess up, it's not like God says, all right, I want to crush this person so they're never going to amount for anything. As somebody who is in Jesus Christ, God has poured out your love upon you, and God's only agenda is to grow you, and he'll bring discipline and those kinds of things into your life, consequences, and et cetera, to shape you so you'll respond and move in a direction toward him. But God's agenda is never to crush you. He is not looking to condemn you with guilt. He is seeking to bring conviction so he can grow you constructively in Jesus Christ. And don't confuse guilt with a sense of godly grief that God brings. And I, I, I put up a passage here from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, for godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces sin. And here he's talking about the, the fact that he had written seven, several very difficult letters to the church at Corinth, a church that he had a deep relationship with. And, and the result of those letters had been that they had come under a spirit of conviction. They grieved what they were doing. They grieved how they related to Paul and God turned them back and it led to salvation for them. That's the way God's always seeking to work in our lives. So the fact that you have some weight is not that God's trying to crush you like you have anything to ask God to forgive you for. The words need to be, God, what do you want to teach me so that I can be different in the future? At the end of the day, as you and I embrace God's forgiveness, we need to go ahead and just be free and live the future that God has for us. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Christ has liberated us to be free. God forgave you of everything through your faith in Jesus Christ. He did everything that was necessary. Everything that you need to forgive yourself for has been removed from your life. Past, present, and future. All that is gone. He's done so so he could set you free, so you can be liberated and therefore, you and I need to stand firm in it and then build as we go forward. God calls us 
to live as free people. You know, I, I believe that, that Jesus was concerned about the fact that we would struggle with sin in our lives once we were made sinless through what he did on the cross. And he struggled with, and, and he was concerned about what we, you and I would feel and sense through all of that. And I believe that's part of the reason why he gave us the Lord's Supper. And we're going to turn to a moment now in our, our lives where God is trying to remind us every single time we take the elements, you've been forgiven. You don't need to forgive yourself, you've been forgiven. The guilt is all gone, it's removed, it's gone. I'm going to ask those who are going to help serve, go ahead and take their spots in the back. Today I'm going to read from the Gospel of Mark's account of the final Lord's Supper. The first. And it's an invitation for us to step into life from death. To step from guilt and condemnation into freedom. The scripture says as they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. And so they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. I assure you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together for just a moment. few moments ago, I, I used the word a true believer in Jesus Christ. Do you, have any, do you have any question in your heart about whether or not that phrase applies to you? This is a very special moment for you. Because today, as God's Spirit is speaking to us, you have the opportunity to respond. And in this moment, become a true believer in Jesus Christ. The bread and the cup that we're going to take in just a moment represent what God has done for us. And his intention is to forgive you of your sin by you placing your faith in Christ and becoming a new creature who's going to live for him forever. You never made that choice today. I invite you to do that today. Simply say, God, I, I, I know I'm a sinner. I got some stuff that I need to be forgiven for. I ask you to forgive me. God, I, I don't know what all that it means, but I place my faith in you, and I commit to being your child, and now for all of eternity through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I, I give you thanks today that you wanted to make it crystal clear to us we're forgiven. You wanted to make it crystal clear to us that it's not about how we overcome our sins, but it's by what you've done on the cross that we actually have a new covenant new relationship with your Father. So Father, as we come to your table today, we accept your forgiveness, we confess it, and we seek to live it as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.